Welcome to a special episode of the Friendly Atheist Podcast. This is Jess. I am here with Tyler Meesom, second time Friendly Atheist Podcast guest. You were one of our early guests in the days and director of my favorite documentary of all time, An Honest Liar, and more recently, Murder Among the Mormons, which I just watched for a second time after dinner preparing for this. Nice. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Now that you're like a big Netflix guy, I wasn't sure I'd be able to lock you down anymore. Yeah, well, you had to work your way through, what, like six assists? Oh, it took you got years. To yeah, and they're all very snooty. <laughs> yeah, I hire them based on their snootiness. <laughs> and they go through a rigorous, rigorous snoot uh, training. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Snooty, snoppy. Snootocracy. No, it's nothing. Okay, um, so let's talk a little bit about like who you are and where you come from. I don't know if people have listened to the other podcast we i did interview they you didn't eight Let's years be ago honest, they didn't <laughs> they didn't if they What's did the- they're probably dead it was so long ago <laughs> it was it was 2014 yeah and i think it was either the day before or day day after mikey and i got engaged because we got engaged at that tam i think uh, that sounds about right anyway so um yeah, so I met you at TAM uh, mm-hmm. when you debuted your uh, your Doc and Honest Liar, which is genuinely to this day one of my favorite like favorite movies, not just favorite documentaries. Um, do you want to talk? Give a little overview on that and ask people why they haven't seen it because I always recommend it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I will ask them why they haven't seen it and wait for a reply. <laughs> uh, I mean, yeah, I, my, one of my last films was called An Honest Liar, and it was about James the Amazing Randy. And it, for those who don't know who James the Amazing Randy is, you probably shouldn't be listening to this podcast if you don't. <laughs> but uh, James the Amazing Randy was a world-famous escape artist and magician. And then later in his life, he became a uh, famous debunker of paranormal claims. So he'd go after spoonbenders and faith healers. Uh, people who use the tricks of magic, not mm-hmm. for entertainment, but rather for deception. And uh, within the filming of the documentary, a deception in his own life came to light. And uh, uh, then I'm, that's all I'm going to say. Yeah, that's great. It's Otherwise, it's genuinely very good. I frequently bully my friends into watching it with me because I demand that they see things that I like. And I'm kind of a bully. Uh, I, I, I mean, I love that film. It has such a... It's such a special, special place in my heart. It really does. Not only because I just, I like it. I mean, if I didn't make it, I'd watch it and go, that's a good film. Mm -hmm. Um, But also because of the people I met and the experiences I had. um, And getting to know James Randi, who died uh, not but a few months ago in Mm -hmm. late October. Yep. It was one of the last times I left my house before winter. And I had gone over to friends to do like an outdoor sitting patio. And I got a text from Mikey. And I was like... Well, now I'm bummed. <laughs> now I yeah. have to... And the, the time before, we had gone to Southern Illinois for our anniversary in September, and that's when Ruth Bader Ginsburg died. So, like, every time I left my house in the last six months, I've lost an iconic yeah. figure. It's a good it's, thing you've been in quarantine. Yeah, exactly. I've saved <laughs> countless lives. Um, so, so yeah, you did that. Um, recently released I Want My MTV, which you've been working on for a long time, right? Yeah, that was, uh, that. I mean, all my films I work on for a long time. I can't seem to get anything done quickly. But that one, uh, that one I started, oh, hell, I don't remember when I started that, 2014, 15, 15, I think you like were that. starting it when um, I interviewed you the first time. Right, and then you and I, uh, we went to a Cubs game, We were, yeah. and it was a great game. God, we had the best time at that Cubs game. Sat down the first baseline. Uh, I'm a huge Cubs fan. 
huge Cubs fan. And uh, we had a blast, didn't we? It was so fu- So you had po- so we became Facebook friends just via uh, meeting at, at TAM because we ended up talking to you about the Cubs. My husband and I ended up talking to you about the Cubs at TAM, right. as we're wont to do. Um, and you posted on Facebook like, hey, I have two extra tickets to this. And you're not from Chicago. So I have two extra tickets to this Cubs game. Does anyone want to come with me? And Mikey and I are texting each other like, do you think he remembers us? No, I had one extra ticket, but then we were able to get another one. Oh. Yeah. And we did make Mikey sit by himself. (laughs) I know. And we mocked him. (laughs) We had much more fun than Mikey. He was back there all by himself. And you know what? He was perfectly happy about that, too. They were good seats. But then we we all joined together and we watched the Cubs win. And then I went to a game the next day. I was out there to interview Alan Hunter, the former MTV VJ. So Mm -hmm. I made a film about the birth uh, and death, seemingly the death of MTV. Mm-hmm. And that one came out not too long ago. It played on A and E, uh, and it will be on Netflix uh, later this year oh, on really? the anniversary okay. I... of uh, MTV's launch. Oh, dope! That's really which, cool. if you don't know what that is, I'm gonna, I'm gonna pull your Gen X card from you. <laughs> Jess. Um, my well, first of all, I'm a millennial, so how dare you? Oh, that's right. All right, I'm very young and ingenuish. Um, you are now friends with one of my idols, Mike Nesmith from The Monkees, which is maybe not a regular idol for a 35-year-old woman born in 1985 to have, but I grew up watching The Monkees and mm-hmm. loved that. Like, literally, Mike Nesmith is the reason I learned how to play guitar, because he wrote Nine Times Blue, and I was like, well, I need to learn that now, I guess. Um, so I'm and very He started MTV, essentially. Yeah. It was his idea to start music television, and, uh, and then he, they asked him to be a part of it. And then he said, I don't want to be, I don't work, want to work for a company. I don't want to be a corporate guy. So he, he sold, uh, sold it and got out. Mm-hmm. And I, I asked him and he was a sage, such a smart guy. It's yeah. been just a great day with him. Went and got sushi with him. He was such a great guy. And, uh, I asked him in the interview and I said, he said he sold and didn't want to do MTV. And I asked him, I said, do you, re- you regret it? Because MTV is... You know, it's one of the largest cultural pieces of uh, iconography ever. Mm-hmm. And he said no. And I genuinely, I, he didn't hesitate. He, he did not regret selling out. He said, I just yeah. didn't want to be a corporate dude. He's such an interesting character in like the music scene because he was a songwriter. So like the monkeys has its own little weird piece of like 1960s nostalgia. But he is a he's written songs that even if you don't know anything about the monkeys, you, you've heard his songs. Sure. Like you've heard, um, what's it? You and I have a different drum. Can you tell by the way I run? I can't think, uh, different drum. I think it's called. Anyway, he wrote that. It's yeah. just a song. Everybody knows. Anyway, um, I'm he's just a, really jealous. He's about a that. cool dude. And we had a good time and his mother invented whiteout. I was just about to ask what so. you think was a more important <laughs> invention, whiteout or MTV. <laughs> The thing is, he didn't need the money either, though. That's why he didn't do MTV. Yeah. It was just like, to hell with it. My mom sold, made White Out, sold uh-huh. it to 3M, and then literally like died a, like a month later or something mm-hmm. crazy. And he, I think he's still, there's probably not as much a demand for White Out right now as no, there used I to be. Not. But for a while, he was doing okay. Yeah, yeah, um, for sure. I saw him in concert in 2018 or 2019 with Mickey Dolenz. I mm-hmm. went by myself because nobody would go with me, and I didn't care. And it's the most fun I've ever had at a show. It was nice. Great. I tried like hell to get him to do a documentary on himself, 
and he, and he won't. just he wouldn't do it. But then I found out that a good friend of mine is doing a monkeys documentary. So can I be in it? I don't know if they're casting anyone right okay. now. Okay. Well, they I do might. own both seasons <laughs> on DVD, and I watched Head recently, well, uh, which is the monkeys. Let's qualify you. Thank you. I appreciate I will, you saying that. I will submit your resume. Your headshot. Thank you, sir. Okay, let's get back into the thing that we're talking about. Um, so you just released, or recently released, Murder Among the Mormons, which I watched as soon as I could and was, you know when like you have somebody you know who's putting out something and you're like, I'm going to go into this and I'm going to enjoy it no matter fucking what. And then at the end, I was like, this is insane. I was like, I think I was like rage texting you while I was watching it, which is <laughs> I think, not yeah, I okay. We don't have text. a close enough relationship for me to be doing that to you. I'm really imposing. But I was, not at I was, all. We we shared a Cubs game together. We're <laughs> exactly. Um, so I don't, should we do full spoilers on this? Do, or do you want to uh, well, keep no, the, ending, I, the twist a secret? There is no way we're going to be able to talk about this for more than five minutes without spoilers. So if you haven't seen Murder Among the Mormons, for God's sakes, go on this little channel. It's called Netflix. It's I think it's out of Lithuania. Uh-huh, I've heard of it. You download this widget and then you can watch Murder Among the Mormons on it. Go watch it because you'll enjoy the series much more and this podcast much more. Mm-hmm. Uh, so go ahead and do that. Uh, and then uh, we'll just wait, right? And we can just it, talk yeah, yeah. while they do go watch go it. Change three hours. Or <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, mine. And, and the, whole thing, the whole thing is less than three hours. So it's definitely like I just watched it in one sitting for the second time. I hope um, you got up at least once. Don't tell me how to live my life, okay? Fair enough. I have diapers. I have all kinds of things to work out. <laughs> oh, the freedom of depends. It really. <laughs> um, so, were you, so can you kind of talk to me about the? Pr- so you've done f- how many docs have you done? You did I the- mean, as a director, I've done four. Now, Sons four. of Perdition, Sons of Perdition, Slayer, I Will Mayhem TV, Murder Among Mormons. Which I guess I could call Murder Among the Mormons three documentaries, right? Because it's three episodes. So I'm going to say then I've done eight, seven. (laughs) Um, Those are three fairly disparate subjects. You've got Mormonism with, or do you want to give a little overview of um, your first documentary? Sons of Perdition is is a film about uh, kids who were teenage boys who were kicked out of their polygamist Mormon fundamentalist community. And in this small town in southern Utah, there's a a community run by Warren Jeffs, uh, the FLDS, Fundamentalist Latter-day Saints, and they don't listen to music, don't practice, you know, don't read books, don't go to school, and they practice polygamy. And they routinely would kick out these 15, 16, 17-year-old boys and basically just say, you're going to hell, and you're no longer a part of the family or the community, and you're on your own. And these kids have to learn how to uh, you know, adapt to a world they know nothing about. So mm-hmm. for two and a half years, we followed three boys and watched them grow up and kind of adjust to this world. And that's a my first documentary, which you always, you know, you always love your first child more than anyone else, right? Mm-hmm. And then, uh, but, and that's a beautiful, heartbreaking, but also emotional uh, film mm-hmm. um, that I'm very proud of. So, but it also, in many ways, because I left the Mormon church, I was raised as a Mormon. Mm-hmm. And it was my story writ large a little bit, you know, uh, leaving a faith and what it's like to leave a faith and to believe you're going to hell and how to overcome that. So mm-hmm. so that was kind of my first 
documentary, and then I made an Honest Liar, then I want my MTV, and then I made the three-part trilogy, Murder Among the Mormons. <laughs> so were you seeking out another Mormon story to tell, or did this kind of... Like, what, what is your process? How do you know it's going to make a good documentary? If I make it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that is cocky. Edit that out. When you um, win an Oscar, I'm going to clip that and send it into the Academy and be like, this guy? Good are cocky you sure? motherfucker. <laughs> cocky motherfucker. <laughs> um, shoot, we're not supposed to swear on the radio, are we? No, yeah, it's the FCC is going to be up my ass. <laughs> you did it again. Oh, um, God damn it. Oh, fuck. So, oh, shit. Damn, fuck. <laughs> um, um, oh, so, no, I look, I, I'm always interested in belief. You know, I'm interested in why people believe certain things. Uh, and that led to Sons of Perdition, which is strong about belief and why, how you can overcome this deep-seated belief that you were raised in. And of course, An Honest Liar is all about belief. MTV is very much a diversion from that. That was just about Madonna videos. <laughs> um, uh, but And then, of course, Murder Among the Mormons was very much about belief. I mean, you're mm -hmm. talking about a guy who was the greatest document forger of all time, mm -hmm. uh, who's ever been caught, supposedly. Yeah. So... Why did so many people believe this individual who would come to them with these unbelievable documents? Mm -hmm. um, and that's many reasons, because they were great, but also I think a lot of them were raised in a faith that mm -hmm. taught them to believe these things. So sort of the broad strokes of uh, Murder Among the Mormons is that this man, Mar Mark Hoffman, Mark? Mm -hmm. Mark Hoffman, um, kept had this amazing career as a man who found doc found documents in rare texts and things like that um and he seemed to be the only person who could find these fabled things that everybody had been looking for and then things unravel and it turns out he has been forging things from the jump like from childhood yeah and then in an in an effort to keep his story concealed he built two bombs killed two people and then got caught and went to jail is that a pretty that's pretty <laughs> good <laughs> elevator pitch right there i would buy that if i were netflix yeah me too that's why i'm so rich because i have the same sensibilities as netflix um so the third episode is kind of when you, it goes from like it just starts digging into like the technicality of how he forged all these documents and the the massive amount of forgery he committed because it because at first it was um mormon doctrine so i found this contemporary piece of something 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 and then it was like abraham lincoln's shit and emily right. Dick i did text you right. that i was extremely upset about the emily dickinson thing and you text me immediately a screen grab of this man's forgery of emily dickinson and it looks like her handwriting remarkable it's it's, it's it's one of those things that he had has, I guess, had such a talent. Right. And I and think I, we, can, we can go into the Emily Dickinson because that's my, I think that may be my favorite forgery of his. Oh, okay. Tell me all about it. Oh, you want to know? You want to jump right to it then? Yeah, okay. let's fucking do well, it. Well, I mean, look, so Mark was a brilliant forger. And, and, you know, there are forgers out there. George Washington's signature is the most forged signature uh, mm -hmm. available. Mm -hmm. But Mark wouldn't just forge signatures. He would forge letters and documents and contracts and currency and photographs many across which, a wide specter. And many of which fundamentally altered people's understanding of history. Right. And he had that power to literally change history. And the way he would forge, though, was so brilliant in that he would, he would, he would find the paper from that 
time period. And he'd usually go into a library and he'd find an old book from that period and he'd take the back paper out, the back, the back page. Mm-hmm. And then he would mix the ink, and the way he would mix the ink was genius. He would, he would, you know, use chemicals, and uh, uh, sometimes he would burn old letters from or pages from that era, and then use that as the ink. So if it were carbon dated, it would come from the 1820s or mm-hmm. maybe. And then he'd use the right pen, um, but also he'd use the correct handwriting. He'd mimic the handwriting of the person. And and more in, impressive, what he he would mimic the the verbiage, the style mm-hmm. of writing of that person, uh, the the language of the era, even. And then he would do things that were very small, like he would make sure if it was a letter that was being sent from one place to the next, he would make sure the postage was right, the postmark was correct, the folding was correct, everything had to be perfect. And he usually was able to do it. So he could he could mimic the voices of Joseph Smith, of Brigham Young, of Mark Twain, uh, of uh, of Francis Scott Key, uh, of uh, God. He just did so many. It's hard. Martin Harris. He did so many great. Uh, ben Franklin. I think he forged Martha Washington. Um, but Martha Emily Washington. Dickinson was one of them. Uh, he 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 created an Emily Dickinson poem, and. Uh, this poem was uh, in 1997. Now, mind you, this is 10 years after his incarceration. He he goes to prison, and 10 years later, a Emily Dickinson poem is discovered, right? And the Emily Dickinson Museum in Amherst, Massachusetts, uh, decides to buy it. They collect a ton of money from the community, and they buy this this poem, this lost Emily Dickinson poem. By the way, I'm watching the Cubs game right now, and there's a bench-clearing brawl. <gasps> there, no punches have been thrown, but Contreras just got hit by a pitch. So, Ooh, shit. anyways, back to our reg- regularly scheduled <laughs> Emily Dickinson conversation. And 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 uh, uh, anyways, they bought this this old poem from Emily Dickinson, and the owner, the guy who bought this, the he loves Emily Dickinson. He runs the Emily Dickinson Museum. He's the curator, and he said he went and picked it up. And he held it in his hands, and he just couldn't believe that Emily Dickinson's hands touched this paper, and his her face was as close as his to this this paper. Oh my God! And they I'm sorry this, about the noises. That's my dog. That's all right. That's all right. They threw this huge party for it. Like they had all the they did press. They they threw this party because the entire community ostensibly raised money for this document. And then one of the guys in our our film, Brent Ashworth, called him up and said, "Hey man, I I read about this." Mark Hoffman offered me that, you know, about 15 years ago. And so this gentleman, Daniel Lombardo, to his own credit, had to, you know, admit that he bought a forgery. Yeah. Um, But the beauty of what Mark did with that, and then eventually he found out it was a forgery, and then he got obsessed with it, and he actually wrote Mark in prison, and Mark wrote him back, which doesn't really happen. But the thing that Mark did with this is, A, he wrote a poem that would fool Emily Dickinson experts. He had the handwriting style of her and the paper, But he did these amazing little things. Like he wrote on one side the poem in ink, but on the other side, up on the top, he wrote in pencil, Aunt Emily. And that just built this story around it. You know, Mm -hmm. that who, who did she give this to? Whose was it? How was it lost? How was it uncovered? How come we've never found this before? It just built this narrative that made it that much better. And that's the beauty of Mark Hoffman. 
You know, all of us as human beings, I think we all want to find something lost. We'd love to go to a garage sale and find the Declaration of Independence. <laughs> um, and Mark would do that. He would basically say, I found this in old barn. I, 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 you know, I was looking through old papers and I, I, I got this. Uh, and that not only made the document more valuable, mm -hmm. but also made it more interesting. Yeah, and one thing that was pointed out is that people would go to Mark and say, I've been looking for X document for 20 years or my entire life. And then lo and behold, in the next, however, whatever the length, length of turnaround is, you'd be like, oh, it's so weird. I just found this exact same thing that you've been looking for. And, and it's one of those things that in hindsight, it seems obvious, but I'm sure when you're in it, like, why would you, and it, it, it said several times, none of us wanted to believe he was committing forgery. Everybody wanted it to believe it was true, and it makes it really easy to sort of graze past any inconsistencies. Plus, he was so talented at it. Right. And, and if you, when you have a captive audience like that, and you have a willing audience who wants these documents, mm -hmm. uh, it's that much easier. You know, you know we, we set up the, the, the setting in which Mark Hoffman thrived, and he was able to really do great work in the state of Utah. And that's because the state of Utah is full of Mormons. And I know because I live here. <laughs> and he, he, you know, the, the Mormon church, albeit it has a relatively young history, it loves its history and it collects its history. And it's known for keeping and preserving their history and studying their history. Uh, but also it's, it's, a, it's a religion that is um, rife with treasure hunting. Mm -hmm. Joseph Smith was a treasure hunter. Mm -hmm. the founder of the Mormon church, he would look actively look for treasure. And he was actually arrested for being a treasure hunter and a treasure digger. Um, that was a, an arrestable defense. Yeah, I suppose so. That's basically <laughs> everyone now is a treasure <laughs> hunter. But, but he would con people out of it. he'd go to their houses and say, I can find treasure in your backyard. And, you know, they'd hire him and he'd try and dig up treasure. And after so many times of not finding treasure, just old bottle caps, mostly is what he found. Um, he got arrested. So, you know, that's that's deep in the history of Mormonism, and Mark would use that uh, to his own advantage. So. That's interesting. So is this, this is a an enormous thing to have happened to a community. Two people were killed in bombings. Millions of dollars were bilked through these, these documents. There's all of this footage of the heads of the Mormon church at the time, and this all happened in the mid-80s, there's so much footage of them saying, literally holding up the document he for forged and said, this changes everything we know about our faith. Yeah. And so now, in when you were growing up, in like when you were still in the community, and now, is this a story people are kind of aware of? Is it a boogeyman, or is it something everybody decided to forget as soon as possible? You know, I grew up in Salt Lake. I grew up outside of Salt Lake during that time. So I was in Salt Lake in 1985 when the bombings occurred. But I was 14, I was 15 years old. Uh, and I was more, you know, I was, things were more important in 1985 to a 15-year-old boy. And that was 15-year-old <laughs> girls. But also, I do remember that that was a great year for wor the World Series, 1985. Uh, that was the uh, Cardinals and the... Uh, the Kansas City Royals. Mm. That was a great year. And it happened on the night of a great game. So I kind of didn't know. And I didn't really care. Um, 
until I got older, and it was always in the mythology of Utah. It was always this like mm. hidden secret of what uh, of what happened, but it was never really told in full. And because a lot of people were embarrassed, including the Mormon Church, mm-hmm. I think it was uh, hidden a little bit. It was kind of kept on the down low, uh, and and that was wonderful because when we were able to make this story, it allowed us to maintain the secret of Mark. It allowed us to tell this story and unfold it as it happened, mm-hmm. as opposed to if we were making the Jack the Ripper story or Ted Bundy or whatever it may be. Uh, we were able to keep, you know, maintain Mark's innocence as much as we, as long as we could. Mm-hmm. Um, so I completely forgot what I was going to say. I'm very good at interviewing people. Uh, um, all right. <laughs> so what does it mean so okay, so this is so this is a thing that Mormon generally, if you ask any given person to in Utah and Salt Lake City, is this general knowledge of people like somebody my age who was born around that time? Was, no, okay. you would be surprised how few people know that this happened. And do you think um, it's willfully buried, or do you think people just were embarrassed? Well, look, I mean, it was it was thirty plus years ago. Mm-hmm. You know, people forget what Trump did last fucking week. Yeah, I forgot true. because I don't care what <laughs> he does anymore right now. So, you know, I just think it, it happened a long time ago. But also, you know, it was kind of kept quiet for the most mm-hmm. part. So even people who lived during that time don't really remember it much. And anyone past that doesn't really recall it. Mm-hmm. They do now, I'd like to think. Sure. So did that make it difficult finding people to talk to? No. Not at all. Really? Not at all. The no. The I mean, it's always difficult. Access is the most important thing mm-hmm. in, in when making a documentary. But uh, anyone, for the most part, who was involved firsthand was willing to talk to us. Interesting. Yeah. Do you think it was come from a place of catharsis, or do you think you approached like how did you approach them? Did you? couch it and make sure they understood that like we're not here to make you guys look like fools we're not here to like point and laugh at how you got duped but we're trying to tell a larger story about this man and belief and and history and what it means and what do we ever know um every single person who was involved in it recognizes that it was an amazing story they Mm. recognize that mark hoffman was special and gifted and that two people died because of it. So they they knew it was a great story. And mm-hmm. no one had really yet made a long-winded documentary about it. There had been a number of, like, really shitty investigation discovery or, like, uh, really mm-hmm. bad TV pieces. Really bad. I, w- I, could f- I should find them all and collect them. They're just really, really terrible. <laughs> so nobody had really made anything. There had been a couple of books, but no one had done it. Now, Jared Hess and I, Jared Hess being uh, the co-director of the film... He also directed Napoleon Dynamite, which everyone in the world has seen Napoleon Dynamite. Correct. Um, and we're friends. I was a freshman we- in college when it came out. It really influenced my entire jam. I could only imagine. It was a, it, it, that film, like that and Star Wars, basically every single human has seen that film. Um, and Jared and I have known each other for a long time. We knew each other pre pre Napoleon Dynamite. So, oh. Um, when when this came around, we decided to do it together. It was my concept initially, and I'd started mm-hmm. the production, and then I I'd garnered from a mutual friend that he wanted to do it, so we met and we had sushi, and we decided to do it together. Um, but we because we we lived in Utah, and because we knew most of these people, and or at least knew the story and knew the subject, we were able to court them 
over the a period of literally years in making this film. We started in 2017, mm-hmm. uh, early 2017, and uh, you know we were able to just kind of gain their trust. Mm-hmm. Uh, and finally, when we got Netflix on board, uh, yeah. sat down and interviewed them. Um, you have frequently uh, co-directed your pieces, right? Everyone I know, Anna Slyer was co-directed. Yeah, is that by preference or is that by <laughs> no. necessity? No, it's not. <laughs> you know, I I don't know how I continue to fall into this co-director thing. Maybe it's just because I don't really believe in myself. I don't know. Um, you know, with uh, with an honest liar, it was very much. I met the co-director of that, Justin Weinstein, at a festival, and I told him the concept I wanted to do, and we had dinner, and I said, "Fuck it, let's do it together." And it was very strange because, for the most part, we became, you know, I mean, tied to the hip for mm-hmm. years, um, and and then we made something very special, and we knew each other for a couple of hours when he decided to do it. Uh, I, I just kind of, I guess, I like the creative process with another individual. Mm-hmm. And when you're making something independently, you kind of have uh, it, it's difficult, um, and you need somebody there to pick you up and say, "Get off your ass, let's do this," and mm-hmm. vice versa. I need to go to the other person. Let's keep going. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, one person becomes a producer while the other person becomes a uh, director. You know, this week and next week, whatever it may be, and then I can shoot while the other person directs. It's just kind of like this team that makes it easier sure. when you're doing it independently, but. But it also leads to creative differences in many times, which are healthy. So, um, Something I have noticed as a creator, I want to get back to the specific uh, doc soon, but a specific, like, obviously we're living in like a true crime boom right now. Sure. Um, have you noticed the trend of this sort of self-insert of documentarians where they kind of become part of the story? I don't think that's anything new. I think that's actually come been been quite prevalent for a while. And many of the top documentarians, if you will, may mm-hmm. become the top documentarians because they put themselves in it. I think in many aspects, it's laziness. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it, it's easier to tell a story if you're telling it firsthand. Mm-hmm. You know, you can put your own voice in it and say whatever you want to do and put any exposition you need in it. Yeah, and literally do voiceover work to explain what's yeah, going on. <laughs> exactly. And it, it, it also, um, I, I mean, unless, uh, me personally, unless you're directly involved in the story, mm-hmm. uh, I don't think you should do it myself. Um, but, uh, and, and the true crime thing, yeah, it is very popular. Uh, yeah. I mean, true crime's always been popular. People have been reading about deaths and murders as, mm-hmm. when there's, as long as there's been Pulp Fiction and longer. Uh-huh. So I, I, I do think maybe it's going to wane. I think people might grow a little weary of it. Some of them are starting to get kind of bad and silly, frankly. Mm-hmm. But I've yeah. been offered a number of them since then. And I just, I, I don't love true crime. Mm-hmm. I loved Murder Among the Mormons because it dealt with uh, religion and belief and forgery. Mm-hmm. And not uh, necessarily just death and murder. Yeah, I want to dig into the sort of existential crisis I had about an hour and a half ago when they said they gave the quote by that Mark said, if enough people believe a lie, then is it the truth or something like that? That's a badly paraphrased. So that sort of ruined my life. How do you feel about that? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You know, Mark wasn't a dummy, Mm -hmm. Uh, but he also, uh, look, we'd cover in the film a little bit in that, when Mark was fourteen years old, when Mark was fourteen years old, he created he, he changed the mint mark on a penny that 
increased the value of said penny tenfold. Mm -hmm. uh, and he took it to a dealer and the dealer said, yeah, this might be a genuine penny. He changed a C from a D, a D from to a C. Okay. Um, uh, and then he sent it to the, to the United States Treasury. And the United States Treasury said, yes, this is a genuine penny from that era, from that mint mark. Mm -hmm. And it was worth thousands of dollars. Now you're a 14 year old boy. And look, I was a 14 year old boy and I tried to fool my mom. I tried to make her believe that I was, you know, doing my homework, whatever. And when <laughs> I pull one over on her or my yeah. teachers, it felt good. It was interesting yeah. to be able to do that, to fool an adult. Mark fooled the fucking US Treasury. And the At power 14. he must have at 14. And just to sell, I mean, imagine 14 making thousands of dollars. And this was what, 1974? five something like yeah. that 78 um the, the the power he must have felt sure yes. and the need to continue to deceive so i think for him he had to justify that he had to he had to say what i'm doing is if the if an authoritarian says it is true then it is true mm -hmm. um and whether he believed that or not he or he was able to just do you know mental gymnastics i don't know sure. So do you so do you think his goal was nothing <clears throat> nothing beyond getting the next person to say the thing you made is authentic? Like did he or do you think he had sort of more grandi like do you think he was trying to rewrite Mormon history or that was just like like the way hackers are like I want to hack into the FBI just to see if I can just to see what happens if <laughs> right. I do. Right. Yeah, don't do that by the way. No, 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 no. Um, I mean again, Jessica, don't do that. <laughs> Uh, you I, never I, let me hack in the <laughs> FBI. Uh, they're looking at porn in there anyway, <laughs> so that's really all you're going to find. Um, I, I think you, you know, according to him, he said that he did it for money, uh, and there was a lot of money there. I don't think he did it just for money. I think he needed to a feed the beast. He he needed to keep deceiving, and he needed to keep deceiving bigger and bigger and bigger. Mm -hmm. um, you know, he, he fooled the U.S. Treasury. And then another one of his forgeries, one of his first major forgeries was the Anthon transcript. And he was a college kid, you know, and he was literally, he had a shitty little apartment and he created this forgery in his kitchen using kitchen items. And that's, I mean, we, we show it a bit in the film, mm -hmm. but that was, li he literally used, you know, things from the kitchen. Mm -hmm. And two days later, he was meeting with the first presidency of the church. You know, the, the, the prophet, a prophet, seer, and revelator, supposedly, yeah. looking at this document, verifying it as genuine, he was in the upper echelon of the church. Mm -hmm. So, you know, he, that, that, the, the power he must have felt, the, the feeling he must have felt for that to happen, I, I, I couldn't imagine. Mm -hmm. And so he had to keep doing it and keep doing it and keep doing it until, you know, he found the most rare and one of the most important documents in U.S. history, the Oath of a Freeman. Mm -hmm. So did he want to change Mormon uh, Mormon history? Yeah, I think he did. And he says he did. You know, he, he says, he kind of hints around that he said he does. Yes. Uh, he found the Salamander Letter, which we cover in the movie, mm -hmm. which, you know, completely uprooted every every important belief in the Mormon church, which is that Joseph Smith... Sure. Yeah, could you dig into that a little more? Because that, that sort of went over my head a bit. Okay. Uh, I mean, I'll go into my full missionary mode, which right. I was a Mormon missionary. You need to put a on a while. tie, please. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, uh, 
short story of Joseph Smith is that, um, you know, it, he, he, 14-year-old boy, prayed, 1830, prayed, uh, asking God and Jesus, asking God which church he should join, and he got an answer to his prayer. In fact, God and Jesus showed up in a grove in upstate New York and told him, don't join any of it. We'll have some more information to you later. We'll email you something. Just hang out for a little bit. And uh, we'll circle back, right? right. Per my last email, keep the keep the state open. <laughs> and and uh, later, an angel came, mm-hmm. Angel Moroni, Moroni, and visited him and said, uh, "God told me to come check you out and tell you that there's some golden plates in the ground, and this is a history of the peoples of America that you have to go find and translate." Um, and that became the Book of Mormon. Are you ready to get baptized now? Did I convince you? Oh my god, I'm so into it. Definitely a twenty-something white guy who made some shit up really feels like a compelling religion. No. Um, okay, so the Salamander letter comes out, quote unquote, comes out. So, which the Mormons for a hundred years taught that Joseph Smith was visited by an angel, and the angel led him to these gold plates. Well, Mark uncovers a letter that that says that Joseph Smith was not visited by an angel, but in fact was visited by a white talking salamander who led him to the gold plates. And the letter checked out as genuine. The document was right. The paper was right. The ink was right. The handwriting was correct. And the Mormon church bought it and kind of tried to bury it. And Mark Mm -hmm. leaked it a little bit. And so they really had to do these mental gymnastics. And, uh, you know, this full-on PR, full-court press to say... Okay, remember what we told you about an angel? Maybe it's not an angel, maybe it's a salamander, but a salamander is often known as fire, and an angel is fire like fire, so it's probably the same thing. Um, Very simple. I always get salamanders and angels mixed up. It's really embarrassing. You know, the fact of the matter is, is it's probably more likely that a salamander would talk to you. I've seen salamanders. I know they (laughs) exist, you know? It's it's more likely that's going to happen, so... Our editor was like that. We we when we edited the film, you know, I was like, we should put more about how they said it was an angel and how weird that is as a salamander and how different it is. He goes, dude, what's the fucking difference? <laughs> like, you know, an angel, a salamander, both of them are acid trips. Well, it's also one of those things that, like, as soon as you bring in an outside party who didn't grow up with this, you're like, oh yeah, that salamander is much worse than that, right. better than the angel, different than the angel for sure. Totally, you should just embrace it and be like, we're the Church of the Salamanders. <laughs> so he both, what I think is interesting is he both made up shit from whole cloth and would forge things that existed. Which Mark, I think is, you mean? Yeah, yes. Yeah, I guess yeah, Moroni I, probably also, but... <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, what, what, what he would always do would, would a lot of these documents would have some rumor to it. So it was, it was rumored that Joseph Smith was visited by a toad. Um, so when he found and it was only really known, you know, very deep reaches of the church and, you know, in some old books that people had read and it was, it wasn't, you couldn't find that information. Mark was able to go into the libraries of the church and find this. So when he read that Joseph Smith was possibly visited by a toad, he just spun it a little bit. So when this letter came out, the church didn't go, oh, a fucking salamander, that's ridiculous. They just said, oh, okay, there's 
probably sort of in line. That. Interesting. He found another document called the Joseph Smith the Third Blessing. Now, Joseph Smith uh, was a prophet ordained by God, which means he could re- receive direct revelation from God, etc., etc., etc. And he passed that revelation on to Brigham Young. So Brigham Young became the second prophet of the Church of mm-hmm. Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, i.e. the Mormons. But Mark Hoffman found a document that said that Joseph Smith's son was supposedly the prophet and not Brigham Young, which was another big damning incident. Mm-hmm. Um, because there was truth to that. There was a rumor that Joseph Smith's son had been uh, you know, ordained the prophet. He found another document that, that said that Joseph Smith was a money digger and used to take a divining rod to go find gold in people's homes. Not a secret. Mm-hmm. So he would always kind of find these faith-affirming documents and then these faith-wrecking documents. Um, but uh, other documents he found, you know, uh, some, of the, uh, some of the ones from American history, there were some that were like rumored that these existed. Um, and he would always create that. So it made it easier to sell it. I found that document that everyone's been looking for. Sure. Including the Oath of a Free Man, which, mm-hmm. you know, we knew the the text of the Oath of a Free Man. Right. But what we didn't have was an actual document of it. Right. Um, so that kind of brings me back to a theme in some of your, and by that I mean two of your, your um, documentaries, of... There are, in Non-A-Slyer and in Murder Among the Mormons, we see experts, supposed experts, who do this kind of thing for a living, whether it's, you know, verifying documents or being in the CIA. FBI? CIA. What was Project Alpha? Uh, Project Alpha was just, uh, Project Alpha is a a story in in Non-A-Slyer. Uh, Project Alpha was just a paranormal research group. Okay. So, and so in An Honest Liar, they brought, actually, you should probably tell it because you're, you know, do this for a living and I'm an idiot. Well, sort of. Uh, look, uh, there's a story in An Honest Liar and An Honest Liar is kind of chaptered in many ways, but there's a story in An Honest Liar uh, about a two young magicians who fool a paranormal research laboratory over the course of multiple years and convince these researchers that they, in fact, are psychics. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's just, Randy kind of coached them along. It's just really great and interesting and funny story that we tell in A Nonest Liar. Yeah, I want to watch an entire movie just about that. That Uh, I'm working on it. Really? We're working on a narrative of it, but that's Oh, that's awesome. Oh, shh, shut up. Good good news. Good things no one's listening. (laughs) (laughs) And so in this documentary it is not dissimilar that it is people who are being deceived largely because they are not willing to be critical true critical thinkers do you think that's a fair statement uh, or do you think or or do you think both the project alpha kids and mark hoffman were both that good that they I, I think it's a combination. I mean, Mark was that good. He was that good. And if he hadn't have bombed people, he may still be out there mm-hmm. forging documents. But I, I do think, I mean, it took, a, it took a two-year investigation, a massive investigation to finally uncover that he was a forger. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I do think a lot of people overlooked certain things. Sure. Uh, you know, Mark was great at many documents. But he was also, in some of them, kind of lazy. Uh, you know, there's one story where Mark uh, found an old letter, 
uh, from the 1800s or 1700s rather, uh, and he he it was signed by Betsy, just signed Betsy. So what did he do? He made up some ink, he got out a pen, and he put at the end of it Ross. Ross. So he he bought this document for probably fifty bucks. He sold it for fifteen thousand, um, and it was sloppy. It was shitty forgery. Uh, the the date on the document during that period. In fact, he changed the date, but that date that he put it uh, put on it was uh, Betsy Ross. didn't use the last name Ross, so it wouldn't have taken much to discover that. But he knew the person who was going to buy it didn't give a shit and just bought it. And so I got a Betsy Ross. Here's 15 grand. So a lot of people overlooked a lot of things. Uh, you know, and, and Mark knew that. But I also think Mark loved being able to fool them. He mm-hmm. fooled. He didn't just fool, you know, librarians and experts who of historians. He fooled document experts and the best document experts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, some of whom you you interviewed, and one of whom was a was a target, if I remember, or was originally considered a target, if I remember right. It was I uh, don't remember his name, didn't write it down. I'm not very good at my job, but he was the one who said he started doing what he did because he didn't have to talk to people, which is a highly relatable choice. <laughs> yeah, that's George Throckmorton, and George Throckmorton actually wasn't fooled. He was an investigator, so he was brought in. He was brought in after. Now, mind you, he was brought in after because. There was a bombing. Mm-hmm. Um, but before that, Mark had fooled never uh, multiple in- individuals. Mm-hmm. Multiple. And he, I think he said when he reviewed some of the, the documents that had been verified by others, that he said, mm, these are pretty clearly forgeries. And so that, that was the moment that I second-guessed literally everything I knew about history. So that's sort of an uncomfortable space I'm in right now. Of like, <laughs> is the Constitution a thing? Um, <laughs> well, two more glasses of wine, I will be dozing. <laughs> uh, I, 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 it, it took a lot to uncover Mark Hoffman's forgeries. A mm. great deal to uncover Mark Hoffman's forgeries. And a, 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 a lot had been done prior to that. The Oath of a Free Man... Uh, went through the most rigorous testing of any of his documents. And that's because it was the most valuable. Mm-hmm. And it fooled everyone. It fooled everyone. It was unbelievable that he continued to fool that many people. So he just was able to do it. He was able to able to fool people. And, and I think they wanted to. Of course they wanted to believe that the first, you know, that somebody found the first document. God, yeah. You know, the first printed the document in American history. That? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Ay, ay, ay. It's... Ay. I mean, it's just so relatable that, like, you give this thing and you don't want to ruin it for yourself and be like, well, if I, uh, I find it, I find it very stressful for some reason. Oh, um, you'll be fine. Oh, I, thank look, you. It's not, it's not documents you have to worry about that are forgeries. It's the fucking people lying to us every day. Yeah. It's that we have a wealth of information at our fingertips and not just. That's not metaphorical. And fucking literally on your fingertips. It's mm-hmm. in your phone. Mm-hmm. You can look anything up within seconds and find out that it's true. Mm-hmm. Or you can find out that it's... Yeah. But again, you believe what you want to believe. And it feels good to believe what you are taught or what you're told that may or may not be true that you want to believe. And it feels good to have your current belief reaffirmed. Uh-huh. No matter who does it. Right. Um. So the end of the uh, of the doc, we learn that 
Mark Hoffman attempted suicide in prison. So he got, he was arrested. He pled guilty. Um, it seems like once the dominoes started falling, that was kind of, kind of it. Um, and he attempted suicide in prison by, by hoarding sleeping pills. Was unsuccessful, but did lose use of his right hand, which was, which meant he can never do what he did again. Never forge again. I mean, which I don't is, think, I, you know, he's going to be stuck in prison for a long time. Uh, so I don't think he's going to really have the opportunity to find old uh, No, of papers, course. But, but like, you have to think that that's his like hobby is like writing things and it's it's beautiful beautiful dramatic irony like if you had written that if that was a fictional story right. i'd be like all right can you yeah. fuck it? like we get it he's not gonna forge anymore guys right it's very shakespearean i mean he fell on his own sword yeah you know truly it's, uh and it happened i i i do believe or i have heard that he has regained use of his hand and oh, that's yeah. after you know decades sure um but I, you know, I don't think not enough to write me a letter because I've written him dozens and he hasn't written me back. So that's he is the what... shittiest pen pal ever. <laughs> he is <laughs> the worst pen pal. That's actually what I wanted to bring up is the, you know, the last one of the last things we see in this dog is that um, is that you and your team had reached out to Mark Hoffman and he declined to be interviewed or never. I, I think more specifically, never acknowledged that you existed. Right. Right. He, I mean, he's never given an interview to anyone. Mm-hmm. Um, he's been visited by certain individuals, uh, family and friends. He's written a number of letters to people, mostly people who are interested in forgeries or have bought any of his forgeries. He oh. has a very odd mea culpa about um, uh, revealing his forgeries to those who have bought them or who's interested Weird. in them. But he's talked to no one else, including me. In- Including his ex-wife and and children, I think is what is what his ex-wife said. Uh, he visited his ex-wife visited for a number of years, and then he got divorced, and uh, that's what committed the that's what led him to commit the suicide was when she oh was the divorce filed for a divorce. So, how different do you think your doc would have? Been? So obviously, with a documentary, it's not like a scripted movie that we need this, that, and the other parts. How different, like, what was the documentary you want, not that you wanted to make, but that, how would it have been shifted by his contribution? Like, what was your, what were your plans? Did you want to genuinely just ask him why and ask him what was his motivations? Oh, of course. I mean, yeah. I'd love to sit down with him. But, uh, you know, you don't need O.J. Simpson to tell the O.J. Simpson story. Yeah. And in many ways, the film was probably better because Mark wasn't in it. We were able to use his words and the words of others. Um, I, he 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 wouldn't have been the most reliable narrative uh, narrator, I suppose. Mm-hmm. But uh, it would have been nice to have heard from him. But I kind of think it was nice to not have heard I mean, from him. And look, I you know, I think the only thing he has right now, he's in a shitty jail cell in Gunnison, Utah. He'll be there the rest of his life. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's all he has. The only power he wields is his story. Yeah. And the power he has over me and 60 Minutes and everyone else. And there have been many, many, many people who have reached out hoping to interview him. So that's the only thing he has is I'm going to keep my secret. Because for a long time he kept a secret and that's the only one he has, at least. So we heard his voice, though, that he was being interviewed after he was arrested. Who was interviewing him at that time? That was his parole hearing. Oh, I see. Um, and he probably gave the shittiest parole hearing you can imagine. It, it was, is 
chilling how laissez-faire he was about all of it. All of it. Yeah, he just did not... I, I don't understand why he, he had no empathy, he had no remorse. He basically I mean, just said, "If they're dead. They're dead now. It doesn't matter. I mean, I think of, he has to be a, like a true psychopath, right? He just simply cannot and will not feel empathy. I mean, I'm no therapist, but I don't think he's uh, completely right. Yeah. <laughs> And, oh, God, can you tell, retell the story about the, the lie detector test? Because I think lie detectors are bullshit anyway. And this was the wildest story I've ever heard about a lie detector. Yeah, I mean, there's so many things that Mark did. And, and there's so many. He, look, he, 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 he passed a lie detector test. And not only did he pass it, he aced it. I mean, he, he scored a plus 12, which is the highest among the highest scores you can actually get. Um and how he did it, nobody really knows for certain. Uh, some people speculate, and one of the lie detector people went and interviewed him and found out that he'd been training for that his whole life. Uh, some say that he put a like a tack in his shoe, and he was able to like press down on the tack for some reason, and that made it yeah, easier. Yeah, I mean, there's tons of ways you can fool a lie detector because it's yeah, because a bullshit garbage right. science. Right. Um, but yeah, that was, and and he had said. And whether this, that's the other thing is he's such an unreliable narrator that like, who knows if what he said is true or not. Um, But he said that he had been training on this for his entire life. And like, what, why, who, what, like learn to play the guitar. He was a deceiver. I don't, I actually have never heard that. I don't, you know, that's what the guy said. Mark was also fascinated with hypnotism and he Mm. supposedly would hypnotize himself and that's how he he said he would he would he, that's how he would find the voices of others. He would kind of hypnotize himself to be able to write in Benjamin Franklin's hand. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's also supposedly how he was able to like get drunk. And you know, Shannon Flynn talks about how Mark would drink a lot and not get drunk, and that's because he supposedly could hypnotize himself. So there's a number of reasons, but the fact oh. of the matter is, is the biggest deceiver of all time amongst the biggest deceivers uh, passed plus 12 on the polygraph. So he it's, found a way to fool it. It's banana. Well, and also if you do have psychopathic tendencies, your body doesn't react normally to stress. So that also tracks to me, my, me, the armchair psychiatrist. Um, okay. So we're getting close to an hour. I don't want to take up too much of your time. Um, can we just talk quickly about Shannon Flynn, who is oh, the bet. best? Shannon, Shannon Flynn, he's so great. Um, I adore this man. I would die for him. <laughs> he's so winning. And so he was Mark's business partner for a while. Mm-hmm. So Shannon is, I mean, we start the film with Shannon. And for so many reasons, we start the film with Shannon. A, because he says something fantastic, which fantastic. is ultimately oh, in many God. ways mm, a, a big part of the theme of the film which is um you know he says don't make me answer that i don't want to make a hero out of him because he was fantastic don't make me answer that he was a fa- he was fantastic um which we do in the film we want to we kind of play with the audience a little bit we want them to revere mark as mm-hmm. a forger and as an artist and i think all of us kind of internally and innately kind of want to do what mark did we want to pull a big con or a big yeah. heist um, none of us, most of us can't. Uh, but also, he's a horrible human being who killed two innocent people mm-hmm. needlessly. 
needlessly and coldly, you know, and horribly. Uh, so Shannon, I, I'd known him for a long time. He was very helpful in the film, and I think he loved working with Mark. He loved what he did for this brief period in the eighties, which everything was better in the eighties. Well, there was cocaine, so. <laughs> Um, I don't know. He, I was a baby in the 80s. Let yeah, me remind it didn't you. stop you. I'm very young and demure. But it, Shannon was, Shannon was, uh, uh, you know, he was, he was playing FBI. He was playing James Bond. You know, he's this chubby, goofy Utah kid who was literally carrying suitcases of cash to New York, or he'd fly to Brazil and sell a document, or he'd carry guns, or he'd buy bombs. You know, it was, he, he, he loved this period. Mm-hmm. And he knew what a great story this was. So when when Jared and I approached him, and initially it was me who approached him, and then Jared and I came aboard, and we we you know when when we were asking him to make this film, of course he was over the moon about the fact that this will be seen and he'll be able to tell his story. So mm -hmm. we worked with him for a long time. He showed up in a three piece suit on the day, which I think is very telling because he really doesn't wear a three piece suit. Oh. Um, I mean, ever. He, he's just kind of a normal dude. Uh, so it was very telling in that he was kind of putting on this different style of dress. Mm -hmm. um, but he was also a great storyteller. He knows the story well. He was able to be em emotive and mm -hmm. and, and informative um, and also emotional. I mean, at the end, he cries and he's heartbroken. And But he also may have deceived me. I don't know. Mm -hmm. I asked him a point Blake question that I know the answer to, and he said he didn't know. Yeah, I, I think that's one of the more interesting things when we talk about like true crime and docs and things like that. Of it's and and I and I understand why people don't like it, but when we go back and listen to like the Ted Bundy tapes or whatever, I I get that we shouldn't give these people more of a platform however i think it's important to give i don't know justice is the right word but to not necessarily their murder victims or their forgery victims but the people who just knew them and loved them and all of a sudden realized this person who they were married to who was their parent who was their business right. partner is not the person they thought that, like how do you trust anybody again and i so appreciate that he was willing to be vulnerable in that way of being like this was my friend. Like, it's like being John Wayne Gacy was my best friend. And right. all of a sudden, what the fuck has he been doing behind my <laughs> right, back? Right, right. And, and a lot of people. John Wayne Gacy duck. <laughs> uh, yeah, there's a lot of there crime if you look for it. Uh, a lot of people, you know, believed in Mark. And, and even after the bombings, most people stood up for him and said, there's no way he could have done this. It's, there's no way. Mm -hmm. And that must have been awful. I mean, that must have been awful to know that you were deceived by someone for so long. Um, I, I mean, I, I, I've never had it happen. As no, far as I no know. amount of therapy in the world would fix me. Like if it was my husband who suddenly it turns out he. He was a was, forger. He's yeah, a White Sox fan. Oh my God. Could you imagine all of these years? I trusted him. Um, okay. One more thing I want to talk about because I love it very much is the reenactments. Um, normally I'm anti reenactment in true crime things because they're almost always dumb. Yours were the most helpful reenactments I have ever seen, particularly in the third episode when they were, it's, it looked like you were reenacting the way he forged documents. Mm -hmm. We were. 
Yeah, and we were doing it as closely to how he did it as possible. And I was so grateful to get that visual element because like the th- there was a thing about and just listening to these people talk about this subject that I know nothing about is document forgery, but the way they talked like, okay, well when you have a document that's from this year, from this paper, you're going to see after you know 100 years it bleeds through to the back. So how do we like it's basically how do we speed up natural processes and some of it is about ozone. Sometimes he just like fucking vacuums a piece of paper. Brilliant. I mean brilliant. Uh, I, I, you know the the things he did to forge were remarkable. Mm-hmm. How he did it was unbelievable. It was art. It was it, absolutely art. Absolutely. And and it was a craft and a science at the same time. And mm-hmm. there was no manual to how to forge a document. Um, but he just figured out how to age a document to make it look authentic. Um, but, I, you know, I think it was more than that. It was the whole package in that he was just this kind of shy, silly, gullible, librarian kind of dude. If he was this maltzy used car salesman saying, hey, look at this document I found. No one would buy it. He always had this like, ah, shucks attitude about him uh, that, that it was able to kind of make people believe that he found this document. A- another thing he did is everyone always says, well, how he found so many documents. Wouldn't people know? Well, he was very good at keeping one person away from another. So he'd sell something oh. to a dealer and the dealer world is very secretive anyway. So he'd go to a dealer, he'd sell this and say, don't tell anyone you bought it from me. You know, I don't want anyone to know. Or he'd have someone else sell it or he'd be an anonymous person. And, you know, he'd, he'd very much keep people away from each other. So it wasn't until afterwards a bunch of people said, well, I bought a document, so did I, so did I, so did I. I bought a bunch of documents. Mm-hmm. The question is, is how many documents are still floating around out there? How many people knowingly or suspect that they have a Hoffman document and don't want to reveal it because, A, they paid a lot for it, mm-hmm. and, B, they may not want to look like an idiot. Yeah, isn't there the thing where a guy sold the Eiffel Tower twice? Uh, yeah, I, I believe that, so. I think there's a story about a con man who sold the Eiffel Tower to two different men, and the reason he sold it to the second guy is the first guy was so embarrassed about being duped, he didn't tell anyone. Uh-huh. And I and suspect so there that, are people out there who have watched this documentary on murder on, uh, on Netflix and go, oh, maybe that, you know, that John, uh, that Benjamin Franklin mm. document I have that I got oh. out of Utah may not be true. Oh, you mean the one that's framed over my bed? What do you right, mean? That's absolutely right. authentic. And, right. Um. All right, so last thing is, I, so you, are you generally the person on the other side of the interview? Yeah, usually, it depends. Um, you know, in this in this case, Jared uh, asked a number of questions. He interviewed a number of individuals, but mm-hmm. uh, for this film, the majority of it was me. So when you're, so there have been a few moments in your, in your docs, and the one I can think, the one off the top of my head is, is Shannon. So essentially, you had asked him, do you what do you, do you think he's the best in the world or do you think he's whatever? And essentially he said, please don't make me say, don't make me answer that. Right. I don't want to laud him essentially. Um, and it, Mikey happened to walk upstairs when, when that was, uh, when that was on, he watched it the first time with me. Don't worry. We're very loyal fans in this house. Um, but he's like, this reminds me of that moment in an honest liar. When Randy said, sure. Of course, I would never say this to you if I thought you were going to use it. And do you 
like, do you know when somebody says something and you're like, yes, this is my moment, this is it, or do you find it in editing? While you're interviewing somebody, and, you know, I interviewed Shannon over the course of two days, Mm -hmm. and I came extremely well prepared. Um, And when I interview somebody, I try to make them feel as comfortable as possible. I try to hide the crew. I try to make Mm. them feel like it's just a conversation. And I think when you're interviewing somebody, uh, you know, rare is it for someone to tell a story, especially a heartbreaking story or an interesting story, without the other person responding with their own tale of woe, if you will. Oh, sure. It's reciprocal. And so I would sit there and listen for, for eight hours, you know, to these people tell the story and fully listen. And frankly, it's exhausting. It's mentally tiring to be continually listening to somebody that long and thinking about what they're saying, but also in my head editing. And I I am I because I, I, I know how to edit and I've edited a number of films. I'm able to kind of like listen to them and go, that's a great line. And I can use that. But what I need them to say is something at the beginning of that to set it up or I need to use that later. So I, you know, sometimes you don't know what you have until an editor finds it. Mm. Um, sometimes you think a line is great. You're going to go, I know this is going to go in the film. I know it. And it doesn't. Mm-hmm. In the case of that particular incident and an honest liar, I wasn't there for that. I wasn't <gasps> there. That was Justin was there. Huh. Um, so I didn't know that even happened. And then our editor put that in the film in a cut and I I saw it, and I was fortunate because I saw it for the first time, as if someone else would see it. And it was uh, it was hard to watch because mm-hmm. we we lied to this person. And I mean, all I could think about was how are people going to think about us? And we mm-hmm. lied to them, and why would we lie to them? Um, so I was able to experience kind of what the audience would experience in that case. It but- was such effective storytelling, such effect because it felt so personal. And then it also made you feel like, oh, are these guys kind of shade stories? Like, are we like, are these storytellers on the up and up? And then the, you know, at the in the end credits, we see Jane, you know, Randy approved of everything in the in this, you know, that that's been aired. So we're all in the clear, right? Um, Which was a tough decision for us because we that was one of the last decisions we made right before the film premiered. Really. I yeah, can, actually, can you refresh it, my memory? What was he? What was he talking? I remember the moment. I can't remember what it was. He says he, he's. He, I don't. God, I don't remember either. But he basically said, uh, uh, "I don't want to tell you what I don't know." I can't remember. But then he says, "But don't use this. Don't mm-hmm. use this in the film. I'm trusting that you won't use this." And mm-hmm. you know, Justin on the other end said, "No, I won't. I won't use this. I promise you, I won't use this." And then we use it. But that was part of the merit narrative of the film. If we'd have put that in and the film wasn't about deception and lying and trying to get to the truth, then we wouldn't have put it. And if Randy didn't want us to put it in there, then we wouldn't have put it in. If he, and we showed it to him and he said, use it. And the disclaimer we put at the, the, the end of it saying that Randy gave us all permission to use this is because I knew that every fucking Q&A we ever did, every interview, everything was like, why would you use that? Why would yeah. you? Um, so we just didn't want to answer all of it <laughs> to yeah. every single person Smart. who watched it. <laughs> Good economy of, of your film. Um, okay, well, you know what? I think I have taken up enough of your time. Do you have anything besides this particular documentary that you'd like to plug or promote? No, Where is, oh, is I want my MTV screen. Uh, uh, 
It, it, it is somewhere. A&E is showing it somewhere. I don't know, but it'll be on Netflix in August. I was so excited. I was grocery shopping and listening to My Favorite Murder, which is one of my favorite podcasts, and Karen Kilgariff was singing the praises of that doc, and I was like... She did. Yeah. She did. Was, I don't know why they haven't done Murder Among the Mormons. I don't know how to get a hold of them to see if they want to, but... Um, but yeah, it, it'll be out, and it's a fun film. It's a blast. It's very different from most of my other films. It's, so different. It's just, it's just fun. It's it's so much fun. Well, so you do a great job, I think, of highlighting how fun it was and how wild it was, and then sort of de-escalating it in a way of like mm, there was rampant misogyny and right. racism and right. things. And I think that to me, that's just such a great way to tell a story of like this it, it reminds me have you seen um class action park i haven't yet no <gasps> what i know i look i can't see everything fuck well see some things <laughs> <laughs> valid um it's it's ex- extremely good and it has this it, a similar um flow to to my, my mtv of they're telling all these crazy stories about this amusement park that existed in the 70s and 80s in jersey called action park and it was, it's everybody saying like, yeah, I worked there. I was drunk the whole time. And like kids would come in and they're bleeding all over the place. And I just sprayed them with the spray and sent them on their way. And it's this people telling the most bananas stories of when they were 16 and drunk in this amusement park and they're in charge. And then they do such a nice job of being like, also, it was fucked. <laughs> like, also, yeah. it was extraordinarily dangerous and ruined people's lives. Um, so I love that in a doc. I like to feel guilty about things I enjoy, I guess. It's sort of my brand. <laughs> well, um, I think we all do. <laughs> okay. Thank you so much for, uh, for doing this with I, me. I, I'm happy to do it. I, I've been doing a number of podcasts lately. Probably I turn down probably two or three a week. Um, but of course I'll do yours. I mean, we're friends. So yeah. Bless your heart. Um, so when traveling is happening again... When you come back to Chicago. Soon. Very soon. Very, very soon. I have a vaccine in me. At least the first one. I'm getting my second shot in a couple of days. Are you? I hugged my niece the other day. Oh, my God. What's that like? Oh, it was amazing. She was not interested. She's 11 and just isn't interested in me. But I told her Dr. Fauci told me I had to hug her. So... It's doctor's orders. Yeah, doctor's orders. Well, if you're ever in Chicago, we're in the suburbs, but we have a spare guest room, so you're always welcome to stay with us. I will be there this summer, I have a feeling. Okay, great. And we also have the world's biggest, dumbest dog, so she's always a feature. Um, How can people find you and follow you and... I mean, I'm at, I'm I, I'm kind of a Twitter. I'm just learning how to use it. I don't really tweet much. I'm not as socially media adept as I should be, I suppose. But I also don't. I'm kind of private in some ways, and I also don't think my life's that fucking interesting. I don't need to tweet everything. Mm. But if I'm I was trying hanging out with to Mike Nesmith. That's all I would tweet about. But I know, I that's know. me. Like you have such an exciting life, and I'm like, I don't know. I just ah, whatever. But uh, I am at Tyler Filmmaker. Um, is my Twitter and Twitter cool. So. Um, and everybody can find um, Murder Among the Mormons on Netflix right now. Yep. Streaming. Go watch it. It's genuinely amazing. Oh, you're um, the best. Ugh. Thank you. Thank you for your time. And I will see you. Just shoot me a text when you're in Chicago. Okay. Well, Copy that. All Thanks right. so much, everyone. Take care. See you, Jessica. Bye.